welcome to this Sunday morning meeting podcast from Kingdom Faith Yorkshire. Today's message is by Paul Abel. In the sheep onesie, okay? Little tail. Yeah, that's scarred Jossie for life. Little sheepy ears, because it's got the full hood and everything. All you can really see is my face. So you know it's me. But other than that, I'm just fully dressed in this sheep onesie, probably feeling quite hot because it's got the extra wool for the extra cold nights. It's got the built-in feet. I mean, this is, this is luxury onesies incorporated that I'm wearing here. Do you like it? It's nice colour white, beautiful shade of white. But then I want you to imagine as well that in this room, everyone else is wearing sheep onesies. Most unusual church. I think that would acquire us quite a reputation. As you look around this room, it's just full of people wearing one sheep onesies of various sizes, but basically all looking very similar, apart from our face. You'd see it was us. You'd know it was who it was. But, yeah, just picture that. A room full of people in one sheep onesies. And we'll link that to what God was doing earlier in a minute. Before that, let you know a few things. So, I was reading earlier during the music from the book of Ephesians. It came up during Days of Favour. In fact, one night I read the entire book to a very patiently waiting group. But actually it was quite powerful to read through all of it all in one go and to see the flow of uh, Paul's thought because it's St. Paul that wrote this letter. When he wrote it, it was nearly, it was more or less towards the end of his life before he was um, put to death in Rome. And uh, so you've, you've, you've kind of got the culmination, really, of everything he's been teaching. It's one of his most insightful letters in terms of bringing everything together in such succinctness. But also, um, it's quite a general letter. It's a lot of his letters, uh, you'll find he's greeting various people and he's and he's mentioning this, and in one he even says, bring my cloak, and you get the impression this really is just a letter that uh, has become our scripture. But with Ephesians, it's a little bit different uh, for Paul, because it's quite, apart from it says to the saints in Ephesus at the beginning, it's quite a general letter. He's, uh, he's really writing down something that is for all the church. Uh, and in fact, there's quite a lot of debate whether... Some of the copies that we actually have are just copies in which Ephesus was put in because it was left blank for all the different churches. So you just have, in English, to God's holy people, the faithful in Christ Jesus. It works perfectly. Uh, Here it says, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Even if in Ephesus is there, what we're getting is Paul's heart for Christians everywhere. Uh, He would be writing to Ephesus because it was such an important centre in the world and in what God was doing in Christianity as well. It was a a major place. In fact, I got a picture. You can see a map of where it was, if you uh, stick that up on the screens for me. Oh, we've got nobody there. Oh, yeah, there is a Hannah. Hallelujah. It's a bit, uh, bit small, perhaps, but you can probably see Italy there on the left, Greece in the middle, and then over to the right, modern-day Turkey, and Ephesus is right there on the west coast. In fact, 
It's almost directly east from uh, the capital of Greece, Athens. If you went in a straight line to the east, you'd more or less hit Ephesus. There's not much there today. It's, uh, it's ruins, although very impressive ruins. If you go and look at it on the internet or go there for real even, maybe, if you're feeling particularly blessed. Um, a, lot of it, it, a lot of it is the Roman ruins of that time. and you, it, There was, uh, in uh, the time we're talking about, there was a massive temple there to uh, the goddess Artemis, uh, which was one of the wonders of the world. Uh, there's hardly anything of it left now. It's been, there's been various wars and invasions that have happened in that area, which means that there's virtually nothing left of uh, that temple. Although it's said that they did use the pillars to build the church in Constantinople. I don't know. We don't really know, but that's what they say. Uh, there's also, interestingly there, um, a, a building that you can go and see, and it's called the House of Mary, uh, because it's thought... And who knows, this is not biblical, but it's interesting. It is certainly a house that dates back to that first century. And it's uh, because John was also based in uh, Ephesus in his latter life, if you remember. Um, And of course, John looked after Mary from Jesus' commission at the cross. And so this house has been known through all the generations as the place that Mary lived when uh, she was there with John. And it's slightly out from the city in a quiet space because it would have been her old age when she was living there. And she probably wanted a piece of, bit of peace and quiet. Um, it was also where John died when he was about 94. Uh, he, it, some people think he died when he was on the Isle of Patmos. He didn't. He was exiled to Patmos, but then he got set free by a, a new Roman emperor. And uh, so he came back and lived in Ephesus again towards the end of his life. Uh, we don't absolutely know, but it was probably in Ephesus where he wrote the Gospel of John down for the first time and collected it in order because it's, it's quite different to Matthew, Mark and Luke which are very early uh, you, and you've got very much the early thoughts of, of what went on. With John, you've got the experience of a man of faith of decades who walked with Jesus and really reflecting on everything he learned then and has been learning. That's why John is so different. It's very personal because of course he was very close to Jesus he always refers to himself in his own gospel as the disciple who Jesus loved. Uh, but he was very close to Jesus. And so you get that different flow. You've got a, full, a much fuller understanding, if you like, or a much fuller revelation in the writing of Jesus as the Son of God. Well, Ephesus was probably where he wrote it. Uh, the church began with Paul, uh, St. Paul, on his first trip there. He had with him Priscilla and Aquila. And that really gets everybody talking. Why Priscilla and Aquila? It's so contradictory of the times to refer to the woman first. It's very, very unusual. You just didn't do it. We don't do it that much, even today. We talk about Paul and Kate. It's unusual to talk about uh, Shona and Brian. It's just a a, a natural order. So why did Paul reverse that natural order? And it's very interesting because he's there briefly when the church is established initially. And then it says that he left that fledgling congregation, they were meeting in Priscilla and Aquila's house. Again, very odd. And Priscilla and Aquila taught those people. And so it looks, it looks, it's a very strong argument to see that Priscilla is one of the first female church leaders. She's quite likely leading that church. There's not really another logical reason for Paul's change of order in that bit. Um, and it, it emphasizes that. This is all in Acts. You can read about it. Um, uh, which Luke, of course, recorded. But um, you've then got Paul there in Ephesus, having to lead Ephesus. Priscilla and Aquila 
running the church there. And then another chap comes along called Apollos. Uh, he's a Jew and he says that he's a great teacher and he's doing stuff. But it, it's also very interesting because Priscilla and Aquila notice that some of the teaching is a little bit off. And it says that they take this Apollos into their house and basically they, they give him the true gospel. They say, look, this is actually what that means. This is actually what it is. And so you see this otherwise virtually unknown couple obviously having a huge influence because Ephesus went, people from the church in Ephesus went all over the known world because it was a centre of trade and a centre of travel. It was a great tourist spot. People went there to see all these temples and, and things. So Paul obviously recognised it as a great centre. And Paul went back there again later on um, to... Um, carry on teaching it's one of the, the uh, it's an unusual place in that he stayed there for three years so it was very unusual for him to stay in one place for such a long time so it must have been a very strategic uh, and significant place to him um, and he probably well, not probably we're virtually certain that he actually wrote 1 Corinthians when he was there in Ephesus so I'm giving you all a little bit of history I like it sometimes just to put a bit of ordinary legs on these things these these amazing people but living very real lives in places that are very there you know they exist on maps there they are that's where he was that's where he wrote the letter to the Corinthians trying to address all the trouble that was going over on in Corinth just across the water there uh, to um, sort them out but when he actually wrote this letter he's not in Ephesus obviously he had just spoken to them he's probably as far as we can put together the pieces in Rome, so it's about 62, something like that. When he was in Ephesus, it was about 54, so a number of years have passed. And uh, when we were talking about John being there, we're talking there in the, late, in the 90s when he's there. Okay, when he comes back from Patmos, it's around 90-ish, 90 to 96, something like that. And he died, as I say, when he was about 94 years old. So quite some place to have... Paul there and John there must have been a real uh, resource. They must have really built on what Paul was giving them here. Um, So let's go and look back at the letter again, having sort of put a little bit of it in context. So he's writing to, in Ephesus, you're really, he's really outlining something to enable the church to go on beyond his life. He's not particularly expecting to be released. He's, uh, he's under what, they, what was called house arrest. He's unlikely at this point to have actually been in prison. He was allowed to live in a home in Rome with a guard. And people were allowed to visit him and he was allowed to write letters. Um, and so from that point there in Rome, he's really writing something to leave a legacy of what all this is about. And so when you, when you see him starting the letter, he just says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He said, this is where it's coming from. This is, this is the authority God has given me. An apostle, of course, literally means sent. Sent by God. God is a sending God. The Father sent the Son. The Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit to come upon us. He sends, pardon me, he sends us to spread the gospel. God is all about sending, which is why 
you know, a, a church is apostolic because we're about sending one another into the community, sending one another to other places in the world to take with us the good news. But Paul is not just apostolic, he's been set aside as an apostle. And so he writes to God's holy people. In Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's his opening prayer. The grace of God. We have the grace of God. Charis, where we get our words like charity. That sense of giving. It's also where an uh, extension of where we get charismatic from. Often it's just thought of as the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but it, charismatic is also all the gifts of the Spirit. All operating in the gifts of the Spirit comes from the grace of God and by him giving it to us. You can't sort of make it up and be successful in what you're trying to do. You have to just let God do it. You position yourself to be right. And that's what we're looking at. What we're actually looking at this morning for just a little bit, just as we go through these, some of these verses again, is just to remind ourselves of what it is to have our eyes fixed on Christ, because he's been saying that so much. God has been talking about this shift in where we are. Well, a shift in what God is doing through us comes through our revelation of who Jesus is and who we are in Jesus. It doesn't come from anywhere else. God's never going to give us some amazing revelation that's different, than that's that's, that's never been there before. It will be there in Scripture. Even if it comes afresh to us in a way we haven't thought about it, it's always there in Scripture. You could say that Martin Luther perhaps rediscovered grace, but it was a rediscovery. It was there. It's there very boldly and very strongly. But, of course, the church had moved into quite a legalistic period. So, having said these things and, and, and speaking peace over them, the shalom... We have this grace and peace today. One of the reasons for sitting quiet just at the end there, you were receiving grace and peace. It is good to sit quiet in God's presence. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. It's interesting that this prayer, the first bit, praise be to the God our Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms. It's the, the whole sort of verses 3 to 14 here at the beginning of uh, the book of Ephesians, it's, it follows quite a strong pattern of the prayers that have been said in the synagogue. You see that very, so this is 60 something, but you can still see how Jewish Christianity is. And when we, when we let go of that, we let go of our roots. When we let go of the fact that we are grafted into that, we are potentially letting go of all the richness of the Old Testament. The Old Testament has not been replaced. The Old Testament has been fulfilled. The law has not been replaced. It's not, oh, get rid of that. Grace has come to fulfill the law. Even in what Jesus did, he was fulfilling the law. He wasn't saying, we're not having any of that law stuff anymore, let's have a party. He was saying, I've come with the grace and the peace to enable you to live as God has called. There was only one way to do this. And that is why it talks about, or Paul writes a little bit further on about revealing the mystery of God. Because the mystery of God to the Jewish people was, this doesn't fully work. 
in a sense. And it couldn't fully work until the Messiah came. And of course the Messiah was expected and is expected in Judaism. And Jesus came as that Messiah to fulfill everything that God has spoken to enable people to live in it. But you had to have the before so you could see the need for the after. If Jesus had come two weeks after the Garden of Eden, we would never have understood that we cannot do it ourselves. There would have never have been a, salva- a, a saviour because nobody would have seen the need for it. People often get puzzled. Why did all that happen? It had to happen for us as human beings to understand what God is doing and the state, how bad the state of the earth is when it's in rebellion. Remember that everyone here in our natural state will spend, would spend eternity without God, which is what we call hell. Because hell is everything that is not God. So think of anything that's good. I mean, people talk, well, I'll go to hell because all my friends will be there. You won't have friends there. Friendship is a gift from God. Friendship is good. Friendship is, is, is love. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. Friendship, genuine friendship is good. It is of God. So you won't be able, you won't be in a position of having friends. You won't be in a position of having enjoyable parties. That's not what's there. But it's not God's desire for anyone to be separate from him. His desire is, it says quite clearly, that all men everywhere would know him. For God, for Jesus came, because God so loved the world, that all who believe. But he doesn't ever take away the freedom to believe or not believe. Because if he did, at that point, he wouldn't be loving us. He would just be controlling us and making us fulfill what he wants. It's an incredible concept that This almighty, powerful creator does not force anything on anyone. That's why he could sit next to that woman at the well, that woman that was totally unacceptable to her community. Even sitting next to her, he was being stained with her reputation. But of course, the cross is about being completely and utterly stained with our reputations. But he's being stained right there and then by her reputation. He's talking to her. He shouldn't be talking to a woman as a rabbi. He definitely shouldn't be talking to the woman. But he totally understands why she's there, how she's there. And all he has as as God is love for her. Jesus, Yahweh, walking on the earth. The fullness of God in Christ dwells. So that means he's Yahweh. He is God. There's not bits of God in different places. God came in his fullness. But it's beyond our full understanding. God in three persons, but one God. Perfect community, but one God. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus came for our redemption, our purchase. Sometimes people think that God was paying a price to the devil to buy us. It's utter nonsense. God wasn't giving the devil anything. That would be like paying the kidnapper a ransom. But God is a God of law. So God had to follow the law 
or it would be chaos. He binds himself to his own structure, the way he's made the world. And there is a type, there is a forerunner of what happened, as there always is in the Old. You can find everything in the Old Testament that's in the New. It will be there. And the story of Jesus and the Father, if you like, is revealed in a story of King Saul and Jonathan, his son. And there was a time where uh, King Saul rather rashly says that if that happens, whoever does it is going to be put to death. And Jonathan doesn't know anything about this new rule that his dad's made. And he breaks the law. So the law says, right, Jonathan has to die. Which, of course, wasn't what Saul wanted at all. But if Saul just overturns this rule, it becomes the undermining of everything that he represents as king. He's supposed to be representing God and law and order and everything that is good. He can't just say, well, it doesn't apply to Jonathan because he's my son. It would bring a a complete undermining of the whole structure of the society and the law. Do you see that? So there's nothing for it. Jonathan must die. But within the law, within the law as it was at that time, there was a provision for redemption. And you could pay, I don't know how many shekels it cost, but you could pay uh, so many shekels to redeem Jonathan back from the death penalty. And that's what happened. But of course the money that was paid was paid by Saul to Saul, effectively. But he had to pay it for everything to remain according to the law. So when it says about Jesus being our redeemer and paying the price. It's not God paying off Satan to say, I'm having it back now, thanks very much. Everything is his anyway, but according to the law, there had to be a payment. Now, no amount of shekels was ever going to pay for what humankind had done. And the price was Jesus, or the blood of Christ. Which is why we talk of the blood covenant. There's something very significant in blood. It talks about the life being in the blood. It's, a, it's an important part of who we are as human beings, but also all, of all life. The, the, there's something about blood, which is why you have these Old Testament sacrifices and the shedding of blood. You see it in all... It's not just you see it in Judaism. You see it in all kinds of religions all over the world, even in remote places where they've had no contact with the outside world, often you appease or you do something to get right by the shedding of blood, even leading to the terrors of things like human sacrifice. Because there's something in humanity that knows it's gone wrong, there is a price that has to be paid so that everything remains in order. And so Jesus fulfilled the law by dying on the cross to allow the release of grace to enable us to live according to the law. And that's what Paul's talking about here. When he talks about us as being redeemed, and he talks about us being chosen, because he then says, he talks, he uses the language a lot of us being in Christ. We are completely hidden in him. So, Hidden in Christ, we step into the fullness of God because Christ is part of the Trinity. So we step into the fullness of the Trinity. We join 
that heavenly community and that heavenly relationship in Christ because we are hidden in him. Which is the rather strange connection with onesies. Because we can only come before God with nothing. We don't have anything that can put it right. So we come naked before God. And he clothes us as his sheep in Christ. You can still see it's us. But actually as you look around the room, you don't see sheep onesies. Actually what you're seeing is pictures of Jesus Christ. Each individually reflecting who he is because he's reflected in every human being. We are, we are all made in the image of God. In every person you can see something new of God. Often it's been marred and damaged by the experience of living in this world, but it's still there. It's why we are precious and honoured in his sight. But now, not only are we precious and honoured because we're his creation, we are recreated in, in Christ and hidden in him. So we, that's why we come before God as it says holy and blameless, because we're there completely clothed in Christ. I'm not sure a picture of a Jesus onesie helps, but we are clothed completely in him. Don't buy one, please. It would be terrible. There's bound to be one out there somewhere. So, in, uh, so he predestined us for adoption to sonship. We're not particularly going into that area today, but it is just that you are completely in God's family now. So as part of his family, you will receive that full inheritance. It is yours. It cannot not be yours. It is yours. All we do is draw upon that inheritance while we're here. But we have a seal, which is the Holy Spirit, guaranteeing the fullness of it. So why did he do it? It says... One, because he was really pleased to do it, because he loves you. You give him great pleasure. He loves to spend time with you. Again, it can be a little bit odd, you know, because we know what we're like, and he knows us perfectly, which is even more scary. He knows what we're like underneath the onesie. But even so, hidden in Christ... We give him a lot of pleasure. When we worship God as a church together, God loves it. There is a beaming smile on his face. He loves it. He says he's rejoicing and dancing in heaven. He's, he's the biggest dancer in this congregation. He don't do no Christian two-step shuffle. If you, if you want to know how he dances, you've probably got to look at Jewish culture and then you'll know. Because that's probably most closely reflects his heart because that's where he went with it. <laughs> so he's probably all over the place, kicking his legs in the air and grabbing everybody he can find and making them dance in circles and getting, probably getting faster and faster and faster and faster because that just makes everybody laugh. Heaven is a place of laughter. 
Have you ever thought about that? When people are worshipping God in heaven, how often does it just go from holy, holy, holy and, and people dancing into laughter? I don't know why they laugh. They're just full of joy or maybe they all tripped over one another while they were trying to do one of those things. I don't really know if they dance like that in heaven. I, you know, I'm just, I'm just speculating and, uh, on that one. But I do know they dance in heaven. And I do know there's laughter in heaven. And I do know there's joy in heaven. It's going to be amazing. And I do know that right now, we are living in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Because that's what it says there in Ephesians. And so we can begin to experience so much of what is in heaven right here on earth. It's not perfect yet because we're stuck in this place of imperfection. But we have been redeemed ourselves to live out our lives in this place, reflecting the glory of Christ. It was for his pleasure, it says. It was according to his will, but it would be to the praise of his glory. So that people, and we start to think, it is so amazing what God does with those people or what God does with that person it's amazing how their life has been transformed it's amazing how they experience that of God it's amazing how God provided for them in that situation it's amazing just to be hidden in Christ and have no fear of God I don't oh yes I did do that but I've repented of that and I'm <coughs> washed by the blood of Christ so I stand before God and when I come into this place <coughs> With my fellow Christians. I'm not like the black sheep that sneaked in. You know, the, the, the bad one of the family, as it used to be called. I'm not the dark one that nobody needs to know about. I'm not the, the, the sort of angel of light, as it talks about in the, in, in the Bible as well, that just looks like an angel, but very sneakily, it's actually of the enemy. That's not you. You're one of the chosen children. You're not getting in by sneaking in. You're here by choice. Not even yours, really. God's choice first. He chose you. He chose you. He chose you. In him we were also chosen. It's there. Why do we ever doubt that God wants us? He chose us. You you can't respond to God just on your own. You have to be chosen. I happen to believe he's chosen everyone and he's waiting for everyone to respond. But it doesn't take away that he has chosen you. He chose Pete Norman in his amazing, mysterious wisdom. (laughs) Would you have chosen him? But God chose him. (laughs) Even more amazingly, he chose Paul Abel. Yeah. But such is his grace. He chose you. You were included in Christ. You are totally hidden in Christ. We can still see it's you, but you have, you're completely hidden in him. Why even go before him? How did you get included when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of the salvation? What is that message of truth that Jesus died for your redemption? That you have been purchased. The payment has been paid. Not to the devil, but the Father has ensured the payment has been made to God. So that everything is fulfilled in the law. Just as Jonathan and Saul was a type of what was to come. God shows us 
yes, I will fulfill everything that is in the law. I'm not going to say, oh, it doesn't matter now. I'm just going to let you all off and forgive you. In Islam, God sort of lets you off. You're not really even forgiven. But God says, the payment has been made. That sin, that unforgiveness, whatever it is, is removed from you as far as it can possibly be removed. It doesn't exist and I will remember it no more because the whole fulfillment of the law has been met. God, God will never come back and remind you of something that you did and that you've repented of. Ever. The enemy likes to try and do that. God will never do it because he would be breaking his own law. He can't crucify you for what the Son has already been crucified for. So how do you get included in that redemption? You have to believe the message. You have to say, yes, I believe. That's what Jesus died for. I'm taking hold of it. But walk out of here today with your head high. You don't need to walk out feeling low. You don't need to walk out feeling down. You're chosen. You're one of the sons of God. Why sons and not sons and daughters? Well, by gender we can be sons and daughters, but it's our position. It's going back to that old law of old times where the son, the firstborn son, would receive all the inheritance. And that's why we are sons, because we will receive, each one of us, the full inheritance. There is no male or female in Christ. Says Paul. A little bit later, that's why. Because every woman will receive the same as every man. So will every slave, and so will every rich person. So will every Jew, and every Gentile. Everyone who has accepted Christ is made one. There is no superior and inferior in Christ. That's one of the amazing, most beautiful truths there is. Because the world has never had a realm where we are one together. Because it's only found in Jesus. And then at the end of it all, let's just finish with this. It's been quite a quiet just sharing of some truth with us today. Because you're going to walk out with your head high. Knowing that you are completely enclosed in Christ. And chosen. With purpose. For now. You're not forgotten about. You're not just winding down for a few more years until God calls you home. God calls people home when they're, at their, when they're being successful and fruitful. He doesn't want time wasted. But go out knowing that not only are you enclosed in Christ, but you have that seal of God. It's like he's put his hand on you. And you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit to guarantee your inheritance. That cannot be taken away from you. You can't lose it. Where did I put my inheritance? It's yours. It can't be stolen from you. The only thing that can happen, and in that sense stolen, is that the the enemy can deceive you into thinking you don't have it. And you leave it stuck on a shelf. Claire, can I borrow you for a minute?
likely to be God. If you go over there, uh, this rather sad specimen is now our full inheritance. I hope it's a lot better than a pink spotty box. But here is God. He has guaranteed your full inheritance. It's there for you. And God comes to you because you're hidden in Christ and says, here is your full inheritance. Most Christians go, well, some go, I want that. I want that one. I'll have that one. Oh, that looks nice. And God's there with the full inheritance, but they've seen something else with their eyes that they want. And it's probably really nice. It could be the, the partner that you've all, you think you've always wanted. And you leave that behind, forgetting that everything is there because you've seen this one. And this one's gorgeous. That's the one you want. Or it could be a job, or it could be anything that becomes more important to you than this. Even though everything that you need will be included in this. Or you might do this. Oh, wow, God, that's amazing. What a beautiful inheritance. That's awesome. Wow. Get on with your life. That's another thing you can do. You can do this. You walk away from everything God has given you. So it doesn't work. I feel terrible. It's a load of rubbish. I'm not having it. You can do this. Thank you, God. Wow, for me. Wow, that's awesome. Where can I put it that it will look really special? It's cool. I'll have a look at it tomorrow. We'll leave it on the shelf. Or, because <laughs> God's always got it, We can take our inheritance from God, having read this scripture. Every spiritual blessing, and they're all lined up. And it says, every spiritual blessing, he's blessed us in the heavenly realms. What does that mean? It means it's perfectly safe. If it was something he'd given you here on earth, it can be broken, stolen, destroyed. But in heaven, all your inheritance is completely and utterly safe. Cannot be stolen. So you're taking the fullness of it. It's like, this is amazing. And you never let it go. But you don't just keep it as a precious ornament. You're constantly drawing on your inheritance. And then as you do that, you realize not only are you being fulfilled. I know this is a poor analogy with tissues. But you'll find that others around you start also to receive blessing because you begin to demonstrate the love of Christ to everyone else. So you begin to give away blessing and inheritance as God ministers through you. Because you're in Christ. You're completely hidden in him. So when I go to Nigel in Christ, it can be just as God come into him. If we will allow ourselves to live in the fullness of the onesie. No, live in the fullness of in Christ. With the fullness of our inheritance, which is not a pink box of tissues. 
It's amazing treasures from heaven. And in a sense, you never take the box because it's always taking from heaven. The box is heaven. The box is the palace, palaces and rooms of heaven that you can take from to share out. Amen. Have a fantastic week. Thank you for listening to this Kingdom Faith podcast. We trust it's been an encouragement to you. For more information and resources by Kingdom Faith and for our other audio and video podcasts, please visit kingdomfaith.com forward slash Yorkshire.